<sighs> hey, good morning, guys. Uh, hey, happy new year, 2020. Uh, man, new decade. So new decade, new year, uh, new sermon series. It's a good time to start it, yeah? All right. Uh, all right, we are going to start out the new decade by uh, returning to this really, really ancient biblical concept that has fallen out of sorts lately. And, uh, and there's this desperate need for us to reclaim this practice, this habit, this, this marker of spiritual people before it's too late. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yes, I understand that that sounds a bit apocalyptic in its language. And no, I'm not talking about giving, okay? So, uh, not, at least not today, I'm not. But, uh, yeah. So anyways, uh, first I want to ask a question, though. I want to start our morning off by just asking you a question. What would you say is the greatest challenge to spiritual life? So I want to I actually ask these. I was going to write it down, but then I, I, I didn't track down a whiteboard in time. So reading, reading the Bible, greatest challenge to spiritual life. Reading the Bible or, or lacking a reading of the Bible. Okay, that's a great one. Anybody else? Prayer, praying, obedience, obedience. Okay. Distractions, worldly distractions, great. Hmm, carving out the actual time needed for spiritual life. Great one. Anybody else? Greatest challenges to spiritual life. Surrender. That's a good, that's a heavy word. That's a, that's a 25 cent word there. Anybody else? Greatest challenges to spiritual life. Damon. Lack of patience. Yes. Wow. Yeah, for sure. Greatest hindrances to, greatest challenges to spiritual life. The world, yeah. <laughs> the world, a greatest challenge of spiritual life. The world, yeah. Trust, ooh, good word, yeah. Man. For all that to say, there's a lot of challenges to a healthy spiritual life, right? There's a word that I am thinking of today. Uh, and and it's, uh, it actually comes from uh, an author named Dallas Willard, who is one of the, the, the great theologian, pastor theologians of the, the late 20th, early 21st century. And, um, and, and he says, you know, uh, in fact, this, this, uh, this was a, uh, this, a conversation between one pastor who called up uh, Dallas Willard and asked him this very question, what do you consider to be the greatest challenges to spiritual life? And there's all kinds of things, right? You can talk about um, that those barriers could be, you know, theological. Those barriers could be regular practice. Those barriers could be, uh, gosh, the worldly things, distractions, all of that sort of stuff, right? When Dallas Willard would ask this question, he said his response was, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And the story goes that the pastor scribbles down the word hurry. Okay, hurry, the greatest, the great, uh, I need to eliminate hurry from my life. And he goes, okay, what else? And Dallas Willard replies and he says, there is nothing else. You must eliminate hurry ruthlessly from your life. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say that hurry is the great or perhaps the greatest challenge to spiritual life? Now, now what about what is so bad about getting things done or, or working hard or, or moving quickly? Is hurry such a bad thing. And then I read uh, 
I read a, a, a quote from Corey Ten Boom, who is the Holocaust survivor and modern-era theologian, and she wrote, If the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. If the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And the truth that, that Corey Ten Boom was getting at was this. She said, basically, both sin and busyness have the same exact effect. Both of them serve to cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your own soul. And then I read from one more theologian. Uh, his name was Paul, the apostle. And Paul says this. Love is patient. Love is patient. Can you be busy and hurried and also love at the same time? Now, I look back at my own life and my relationship with my kids, my family, friends, anybody. When I am hurried, usually the least loving part of my life. It's always the low points where I'm like, it's not very loving, but I'm in a rush. I have things to do. You are in, you're impeding in my ability to get things done. And, and, and I use the word frustrated in those moments, but the reality is I'm just, I am, I am incapable of being both loving and hurried at the same time. There's this word in the Old Testament for what we really, truly need. What is the thing that can get us out of this sense of hurry and rushing and busyness? Um, it's the word Shabbat. Da, da, da. All right, uh, Shabbat. It's an action word, mind you, and it means to cease, to stop, to be absent, to come to an end, to perish or die or rest, and even to celebrate. Now you can see, this is a pretty diverse word in the Hebrew language, right? Like it runs the gamut in a way. Um, and, and, and you can even see that, that, that it basically what it boils down to is Shabbat is an active elimination of the human hustle. You can see that the word actually gets pretty harsh sometimes, right? Like it's got words like it can mean to perish or to die or to come to an end, right? Eliminate even is another word. And, and it's, it's interesting how that word is actually used as an action verb where the agent of that action is Yahweh, is God. God shabbats humans when they get so distracted by other human pursuits and, and other definitions of success or, or what Abraham Heschel defines as the conquest of space at the expense of time, that God himself has to put an end to their plans, to destroy their hurriedness, to eliminate distractions, and, and so restore a, a season of rest, even if he must do so drastically. God's intent to Shabbat is very important to him. Now, this action and attitude this verb of ceasing and celebrating and resting uh, came to be known as a, within a particular day that was set aside for human renewal and revitalization, and it became known as, anybody? Sabbath. Sabbath. The word for Sabbath is Shabbat in Hebrew. Sabbath. And while many of us will come to church on Sunday morning, and, and many of us will even take a day off or two every week, 
and we, we participate in worship, and we, we, we celebrate the Sabbath. But uh, let me ask you the question, are we actually conscientiously practicing the sacred art of Sabbath? Do we have a built-in pattern and practice of resting in the very presence of God, the healer and redeemer? Or are we merely crashing and taking a break every so often because we are totally and utterly exhausted from all of our work? Is Sabbath an active resistance to the bondage of hurry and busyness? Or, for you and for me, is it merely a passive, vegetative state that we fall into when we have literally run ourselves empty? For me personally, Sabbath looks a lot more like an induced coma than it does any kind of celebration or, or an enjoyment of the work that God and I partnered in together. Mostly it's like I need an IV of, of, of junk food and Netflix, and, uh, and then that's just, I'm gonna just sort of like disappear from human existence. Sabbath for me is not a restoration of human existence. It's probably like my lowest moment of human existence in so many ways. Um, so is that, is that is, am I speaking to a familiar crowd? Or are, we, are we kind of on the same page here that Sabbath may have become to us in this way? So what if the church, here's my, here's my big idea, not just for today, but for the next two months and hopefully beyond. What if the church, and more specifically, what if our church practiced Sabbath. And not Sabbath like the induced coma version of Sabbath. What if we practice Sabbath as the sacred art of stopping the way that God always meant for us to? Would that change anything? Would that communicate anything to the rest of the society? Would that profoundly and eternally change the nature of our spiritual life and community? And one more question for you. Would it hurt if we tried it? And for some of us, and many of us, and maybe most of us, the answer to that last question is, yes, it will hurt if I try this. Because... To unravel the coils of doing. To cast aside the pursuits and the distractions and the addictions of of perpetual motion will be painfully difficult. To set down the habits of life that promote this, this constant moving and to finally stop may require a miraculous intervention, a literal act of God to kill off our selfish motivations and our dreams of more. It will not be easy, but I promise you, I bet you, I'm going to say I bet you, it will be good because Jesus says it is good. Now, before we get into it, and I want to I want to pray. Um, I'm going to pray right now, and we're gonna we're gonna continue forward. But Father, we just uh, huh, I hope you know what you're doing, um, because man, this idea this is this sounds really hard. <laughs> the act of not doing strangely sounds oh so difficult. It requires a massive amount of trust. So, Father, help us as we learn, as we explore, as we, we seek out what your word says, as we try to understand, God, what you have meant for us, what it means to be human, but also to understand what rest means truly and actually 
and as part of your plan for us as human beings made in your image. I thank you for the opportunity to explore it, to learn, to open your word, and hear from you as you speak to us. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I just want to say right here, right at the beginning, before we get going, I am not coming up here today to speak for you as one who comes with authority on the subject of rest. When it comes, I have not mastered the art of biblical rest and Sabbath. Not even close. Uh, I'm reminded of, uh, I come convicted of what I must do, of what the Bible is clearly telling me is part of the way of Jesus, but also I am coming as one who sees how far he has strayed from this path that I need to repent and turn from something that is leading me to destruction. When it comes to the human bent of hurry and busyness, I see myself as Paul does, as the chief of sinners. I, in fact, I think I may have invented the phrase burning the candle at both ends. It might have been me, actually, um, who came up with that. I don't know. I was probably too tired working on it. So uh, I was probably up too late trying to come up with that phrase. So... um, So I'm not coming here, and I'm not coming to offer you a hand up as one who has already learned and come said, come and join me in this restful place. I, I myself am journeying toward what I hope is a restful place. And all I'm asking you is a shoulder to lean on as we go together. All right? You guys want to take this adventure with me? Oh, man, it's a risky journey going to hurt. But man, I think it's going to be good, okay? All right, let's do it. So here's what we're calling our series. We're calling our series This Sacred Moment. This Sacred Moment, and the title will make so much more sense next week, I promise you. Um, But this is a journey through the Bible. We're going to start in Genesis starting next week, and we're going to work our way through, okay? Shouldn't take us very long. Sky view hitting about eight weeks worth, okay? Um, but, uh, and we're going to hit the idea of Sabbath from beginning to end, okay? Sabbath in all of Scripture. Today, though, we are going to begin with an invitation from Jesus. Uh, our passage, if you have your Bibles with you, is from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them there. It's going to also be up on the screen. We do have some Bibles in the back. Uh, if you are interested in one. If you don't have a Bible at all, man, go ahead and take that one with you. It's yours. It's our gift to you. All right. So here's what's going on in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, Jesus has just sent out these 12 disciples to go and to teach and, 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 and preach the good news of the kingdom of heaven throughout the region, and they're saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this, this upside-down reality of society that, that loves one another, that gives of themselves for one another, that thinks of others as they would, that loves one another as they would love themselves, that is kind and generous and, and humble and just, that sees people as as made in the image of God and seeks to restore them and love them and loves even their enemies and prays for their enemies. This kingdom of God is at hand. Go and teach. And so these disciples have gone throughout the region and they're carrying the message of the kingdom of heaven to all the area. And so word is getting around that this this kingdom of heaven is near and specifically this, this man named Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven. He's teaching. He's doing miracles. He's, he is, he's proclaiming this, this amazing new thing. And so these men approach Jesus, and, and they, are, um, they are disciples of, of this other man named John the Baptist who, who came and, and started kind of ushering in this, this kingdom and telling people that it's at hand and it's coming and preparing you for what is to come. And so these men, they come to Jesus and they go, hey, are you the one who is to come? The one that, that John the baptizer told us about? The one that we've been searching for? 
or should we go look for another? Is there another one? Are you the guy, or are you, is there another guy? We've been hearing that you're the guy. Are you the guy? We're not sure. So Jesus replies to them, and he says, he says, tell, the, tell John, tell John this. He says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Tell John that. That's what's going on. Then, John turns, or then Jesus turns to the crowd, and he basically tells them, all right, guys, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? You keep encountering the work of Yahweh in the world, whether in the suffering spirit of the prophet or in this celebratory event of the king, and then you turn away and you dismiss it going, oh, he would never suffer that much, or oh, he's, he's, he's just dining with sinners. What's his problem? You're, you're constantly finding ways to disregard God's coming of the kingdom to the earth. So what are you looking for? What are you looking for? The very presence of God is in your midst, revealing himself to you in these powerful and authoritative ways, and you are missing it. You are distracted by something else. And it's at this point that Jesus gives this invitation. One that is as timely now as it was then. So we're going to start with just verse 28. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus just starts out by inviting people into the presence of God. Come to me, be near me, sit with me, spend time with me, remain right here. Stop searching, stop rushing, pushing, reading, watching, working, producing, doing, and just be. Now here's the kicker, I love this. He says, like, who are the people that are, he is inviting? What, like, what does he call the people that he invites to come near him? All of you who are what? Weary and burdened. You who are weighed down with expectations and requirements. You who are overloaded with work and toil, laboring and struggling. Jesus is talking about those who are under the law. He's talking about those who are, are bound to the Jewish Torah, those who were determined to keep every law perfectly and exactly and precisely, even if that meant sacrificing what the Torah was all about. Because here's the thing, what all of the Torah is about is about preparing the human heart To be able to enter into the tent of the holy God and be with him. All of the law, all of the Levitical preparation, all of the ceremonial and moral and religious laws, the civil laws, all of that was to prepare this frail human to be able to walk in and enter the space of the holy God and dwell with him. That's the whole point. What it became was not a sense where you could come and dwell with God, but to where you became a better person the more and more you succeeded in doing. It became less about just being present with God and more about gaining his favor, his appreciation, finding your value in what you could do for God without actually having to be with him. So what Jesus is calling to is he's calling to those who were under that law, but he's also calling out to those who were determined to live their life according to human success, 
pursuits of power, pride, possessions, pleasures. Those whose primary objective was to see it all, do it all, have it all. Jesus' invitation is for them too. It is for all who have given way to the inertia of perpetual motion, the danger of a hurried life. Now, that being said, I am 99.9999% that that applies to you too and to me. You and I are the product of thousands of years of human development in the science of hurry and busyness. Now, I, I, I took some time and I read a little bit about the, the history of hurry and distraction this week. And I would say, if I were to look back, I would say that, yes, weary and burdensome are accurate depictors of what we have become. So let me, let me give you the, the short synopsis of what I found. 200 B.C., 200 BC, this new high-tech piece of equipment came out and changed everybody's life. It was called the sundial. The sundial. It measured what for people? Time. Time. Before that, how, was, how did people operate? How did they survive without a sundial telling them what time it was? The sun rose, and they woke up. The sun set, and they went to sleep. And they worked when it was light, and they rested when it was dark. And when it was cold, the days were shorter, and so they got more rest. And when it was, when it was warm and more life-giving and energy, they worked longer days, and they did that. And then they rested and they celebrated more. And then suddenly, in 200 B.C., the sundial appears, and now you can measure time and take these natural rhythms of life and synthesize it into this structured, ordered method in order to gauge our productivity and usefulness. And boy, did people complain about it. The Roman playwright uh, Plautus said this. He said, The gods confound the man who first found how to distinguish ours who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. This was 200 B.C., mind you. Then, 1370, several, year, several uh, a thousand years later, the first public clock tower was erected in Germany. And suddenly... Life shifted from this natural agrarian rhythm of sun and moon and seasons and years to these artificial rhythms. Now it's nine to five all year long. We stopped listening to our bodies and we started rising when our alarm clocks rang out instead. Uh, the pastor John Mark Comer writes that we became more efficient, yes, but we also became more machine and less human being. One historian writes of this moment in history. He said, here was man's declaration of independence from the sun, new proof of his mastery over himself and his surroundings. Only later would it be revealed that he had accomplished this mastery by putting himself under the dominion of a machine with imperious demands all its own. And then, Edison invents the light bulb in 1879, and all hell breaks loose. Before Edison, guess how much time people like average sleeping? People averaged 11 hours a night sleeping before Edison. After, guess how much, you know what our average is now? Seven hours. We average seven hours of sleep compared to 11 before the light bulb. We have more time to do stuff now. We can be more active. We can be more busy. We don't have to worry about the sun going down or coming up anymore. We can wake up whenever we want. We don't need sleep. As technology increases, we rush more and more and rest less and less. In the 1960s, futurists all over the world 
we're sure that by now, we would be working way fewer hours. There was, a, um, there was a Senate subcommittee in 1967 that was told that by 1985, the average American would work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. Technology improves. We don't need to work as hard, right? We have more modern conveniences that do most of the work. So we don't need to work as much. So we'll work fewer hours for less time. We'll be become a leisurely people. And everybody thought the main problem in the future would be too much leisure. Do you know how much we work in comparison to 1979? We average four more weeks a year of work time than we did back then. Four more weeks a year. That has, we have done the opposite. Leisure time has gone down. Work busy time has gone up. And today, perhaps the single greatest deterrent to the natural rhythms of rest and work as God intended is found in our pockets. The year 2007 altered the course of history as we know it when Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. Suddenly, information and and productivity and entertainment and social interaction, every perspective in the world is viewed through the lens and the screen of this tiny device. A recent study found that the average iPhone user touches his or her phone, and this is real, 2,600 and 17 times a day. 2,617 times a day. Each user is on his or her phone for two and a half hours over 76 sessions. And that's for all smartphone users? That's not like, if you were just to count millennials, like my generation and below, It's like double that for everything. I do not want to show you what the screen time says on my phone. I'd be embarrassed to share that information with you. In fact, I'm just going to put this back here because we're not going to talk about that anymore. I'm not going to touch it for the rest of the day. It's it's depressing and embarrassing how much that that is. Uh, A similar study found that... um, Uh, Oh, also, in every study, most people surveyed had no clue how much time they actually lost on their phones. They had no clue. Uh, A similar study found that just being in the same room as our phones, like you're in a room and your phone is in the same room, even if the phone is turned off, it will reduce a person's working memory and problem-solving skills. So what's the translation? If your phone is in the same room as you, you get dumber as a result. You literally get more stupid if your phone is in the same room as you. It's scientifically proven. Because if you grow dependent on your smartphone, it becomes this magical device that silently shouts your name at your brain at all times. You know this to be true. Today's society and our need for the Sabbath maybe be best summed up by the words of of, of Ronald Rollheiser, this Catholic theologian. He says, Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to to have any interior depth whatsoever. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It is just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screen. We are more busy than bad. 
more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, the shopping mall, the fantasy life that they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. As a general rule, we as a society, as a humanity, are too busy, too hurried, and too distracted. And it is destroying us. So what's the, what's the antidote? What is the solution to all of this, to, to thousands of years of systematic deterioration of the human psyche, of, of any real connection to this spirit that gives life. Jesus says it right here. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. And that sounds easy. But oh, the roadblocks and the barriers that we, we find in our way that we are either unwilling or unable to remove. So is there more to this? Well, let's keep going. Verse 29, how are you guys doing? Good? Okay. Verse 29, Jesus continues. He says, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. All right, so first, what does Jesus say? He says, come to me, you who are weary and broken. I will give you rest. Jesus welcomes you exactly as you are broken and hurting and weary and burdened into his presence. And in his presence, Jesus offers you the chance to Sabbath, literally to stop. And you will receive the gift of rest and renewal. Come, let me take your burdens from you. You will find rest and relief. Now Jesus is going to offer us a challenge and a call. He says, take up my yoke, learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. Now look at the, look at the distinction here. When you, when you experience the presence of God, you receive rest as a gift. It, it, it's, it's something given to you. When, however, you choose to align your life and your habits with the way of Jesus, you will discover rest as a result. So rest, in Jesus' words, is both a gift from God and a discovery for you to uncover as you go. That's interesting. It's a gift and a discovery. So, that begs the question, how do we discover rest? We take up Jesus' yoke. Okay, what's a yoke? Let's work through the language here, right? In order to discover this rest, we have to take up the yoke of Jesus. So, historically, a yoke was, it was originally this, this pair of scales that was used to balance uh, things out, and then it became a, uh, that balancing scale thing became a harness that was placed on two oxen to join them together for farming and, and moving carts, okay? So you have two oxen, keep them both from going all over the place, you put this yoke on top of them, bind them together, and they go before it, and their power, it, it pairs together, and it supports each as they go and as they pull, okay? Now, later... Uh, the yoke was taken from uh, oxen and it was placed on captives and slaves. They used yokes on slaves to do the same sort of thing. And then later that became a term that was used for uh, a nation or a country when it was conquered by another country and placed under its, its rule as more like a slave-master relationship. When you, when you subjugated another nation to your rule and made them do all of your bidding you placed a yoke upon them, the yoke of slavery, okay? So that's the idea of a yoke. Wait, what is Jesus talking about? That seems strange to me. 
Now, keep, keep reading. Keep reading. This is, this is important. Now, in Judaism, the Torah, the Old Testament law, is described also as a yoke, something that you are bound to that will keep you going in the right direction. Okay? However, Judaism always said that, that, you, uh, that you are to accept the yoke of the law and obey it. Never to take it. The yoke of the law is not something that was voluntarily taken upon. It was something that was placed on you. You have to have the law, so just accept it, get used to it, and work with it. Because this is what we have. The law is placed on you whether you wanted it or not. Now Jesus comes. And he offers you to take the yoke. This, this new law of life that is going to be all about relationship with him and commitment to him and dependence on him. And he's asking you to take it voluntarily. Would you take my yoke? Jesus offers you a choice. He says, you can go on living the burdensome life. You have a yoke on you right now. That's why you're coming and you're burdensome and weary and tired and exhausted and all of that. You can go on with the yoke that you have accepted as your lot in life, or you can replace it with a new one. Here's the yoke that I offer you. So the challenge, then, that Jesus gives us is twofold. One, keep in step with him. What is a yoke doing? It's lining us up with the movement of God. If, if, if Jesus is taking the path and he's working the fields and we are yoked with him, what does that mean? It means we keep in step with him as he goes. We are literally walking the same path that Jesus walks in his way. Secondly, we are also learning from him who is lowly and humble in heart. One of the greatest challenges to spiritual life, and I think the thing that promotes more hurry in us especially as followers of Jesus, is, is this, we get this sense that we are deluded into thinking that we are the master as if Jesus has nothing left to teach us or as if Jesus serves more as like a, a, a guide who imparts better tools for you to live a more successful life. It's like Jesus is, it's, sometimes it's almost like, well, we have this yoke that we have to carry, and it's like Jesus goes, oh, well, no, it's okay. I've got some really good Tylenol for you or a booster pack to help you go faster. And we kind of use Jesus and the tools to say, oh, Jesus is going to help me be a better person. And by better person, we mean a more successful, more effective, more like we're going to continue to do and do and do and do things, but this time we'll do them in Jesus' name and we'll gain more favor, Right? We never stop doing, but now we feel like we're doing better things, and so it's okay. Parent better, work better, do more, earn more, have more. And, and Jesus is seen as a, a, a standard of moral perfection that I must somehow live up to and, and raise my game and, and serve in as many ministries as possible in order to accumulate more brownies in my cat in my my uh, more brownie points, more feathers in my cap, more, more jewels in my crown. I mean, have you ever noticed how easy it is to become prideful in church? Man, as a people who are called to be the most humble, we are really bad at it sometimes. Like, we're awful at it. Pride shifts us away from, like, from, from the things of God, from presence of God, from acknowledging that we are a broken and humbled people in the, in the eyes of God, and yet he brings us and restores us in. So rather than attitudes of gratitude, we gather attitudes of pride over, over what we accomplish, what we build, what we own, what or how we teach. Pride shifts church and ministry and spiritual life and Christianity from a life that is just about being with Jesus to a life that is about doing for Jesus. 
how foolish we must be as, as finite, limited followers of Jesus that, that we believe we can do so much for him and spend so little time with him. I was teaching at a winter retreat uh, several years ago um, with about 75, 20-somethings out at Lake Tahoe. And, uh, and the last session of the weekend, uh, right after I finished it up, this, the, the college-aged worship leader came and sat down next to me. And I'd ended about talking about our need for rest, uh, just, to, just to stop our endless pursuits of doing so that we can spend more time being and this young man sat down and, and shared with me that he was just, just totally burned out with ministry responsibilities. He was leading worship for the adult services. He was leading worship for the young adult services. He was leading worship for the youth services. He was leading worship for the kids' services. He was constantly working youth group, children's ministry, everything. And he was working full-time job, and he was going to college. And so he's exhausted, and he just couldn't keep up any longer. He was 20 years old, burned out with church, ministry, life, 20 years old. So he asked me the question, he's like, so you talked about having rest, finding rest. How? How in the world do I find rest? I've got all of these things going on, and if I stop them, they'll all die, so I can't stop them. I have to keep doing them because they depend on me to keep working, so if I stop doing them, they'll all fall apart, and everything will go away. And then, then God's effectiveness gets lost. People will stop, like, all of these things. And so, like, I can't, I can't not do that, so how do I build in rest? And so what he was asking me was, how can I find rest and do everything at the same time? How do I have like a more restful, joyful spirit and not stop doing all of the things that I'm supposed to do because if I fail, I'm a failure, right? So I asked him the question like, but like just, can't you just stop? Like what would happen if you stopped? What would happen if you just stopped doing it? And he was like, well, everything will die. I'm like, so, like, people will stop worshiping God if you stop playing the, in- the instruments for them? Will they, will they really stop worshiping God if they, well, then what's it built on? Worship of God is not built on enjoying the presence of God. It's built on you being able to play the right instrument for them at the right time. Would spiritual life end, like, utterly, if you were to just stop one of those things, two of those things? What's the consequence, on the other hand, if you don't quit? If you just keep going, if you just keep pressing and pushing and hurrying? If you exhaust yourself doing all of these things for God and you omit and sacrifice spending time with God, we are all about conquering space at the expense of time. We gather more, do more, have more, and we take less time. And we use up all of our time to do that stuff instead. If you keep doing that, you risk pushing out the presence of God and turning something that should be sacred and beautiful into this dreary, obligatory distraction from what God is actually asking of you. And and as I'm sharing with this man, like, dude, just stop. Like, that's how you rest. You just stop. You have to stop. And he broke up. He just broke up. He fell apart in tears But it wasn't out of relief. It was out of despair. It was out of despair because he had pushed himself so far in the name of ministry. And it was killing him. But the cycle of busyness and hurry and overload had replaced the God-ordained rhythm of work and rest that comes with being a disciple Jesus. Jesus himself says he is lowly and humble, verse 29, and he does not expect the world from us, only that we would come and join him and learn from him. 
And the only way that we can do this is to Shabbat, to stop. Stop serving. Stop fighting for the things of God and start angling for more time with him. Stop learning about Jesus and and start learning from Jesus. There's a difference. Sit at his feet. Stay a while. Now, this is going to take what we call spiritual discipline. And, And by discipline, we all immediately shudder at the word. I don't mean punishment. It will feel like that sometimes. It will feel like you're being punished in the beginning. But I don't, I'm not referring to spiritual discipline as a punishment of sorts. What I mean is a reforming of spiritual habits and practice in the everyday mundane moments of our humanity that move us ever closer and deeper into the presence of God. If we have so successfully succeeded at being able to touch our phones 2,400 times a day over 67 sessions for two and a half hours, we have cultivated a practice, a habit of dependency and reliance and presence with our phones. And we see no, and not only that, what does it say? What was the the result of the study? People had no idea it was that much. It just happened. What we're asking for is a reforming of spiritual habits that do this, what, what we ourselves did with our phones, that happens with God instead. Gradual, radical, reshaping and reforming of habits and practice in the everyday mundane moments of our humanity that move us closer and deeper into the presence of God. And spiritual practices and disciplines can look something like solitude, prayer, fasting, silence, Sabbath. To take on the yoke of Jesus means that we will first need to be unyoked to the habits and rhythms and devices of distraction that have subjugated us to slavery. And at the same time, we have also accepted that as the way of things. If that is the way of man, then it is heavy and burdensome and weary, but it is not the way of Jesus. What is the way of Jesus? Verse 30, Jesus says, For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And now, when Jesus says, my way is easy and light, he's not saying it's easy and light because it doesn't take any effort and it doesn't require any sacrifice. In fact, following Jesus is totally the opposite of that. To follow Jesus means it will take all of yourself, and it will mean sacrificing everything. It requires all of you to follow him. It is light because it is the only way that works. It is the only lifestyle that actually produces an ongoing satisfaction and a well-being. Other, there are other things that you can do, and we often, we, we, we radically push out of those because we don't want to surrender ourselves fully and completely to something voluntarily. We'd almost rather be conscripted somewhere else because we go, well, it wasn't my fault. I just got in, I'm just a slave to that. It's not it's who I am. It's nature, right? It's way harder. It's way more difficult. It's way more destructive. None of us will look at that and say, yeah, two and a half hours is a good amount of time on a phone. I think that's healthy. I think that's reasonable to touch my phone 2,400 times. None of us would say that's an acceptable, healthy practice. I think sometimes we, we equate easy with, with how I've been conformed, right? If, if I have become hunched over as a result of bad posture or, or, or other things, bad habits. This is the least painful way to walk. 
it's not the best. It's certainly painful, but it's the least, it's the least painful one. To actually straighten up my body is going to be the hardest, most hurting thing that I've ever experienced because my body has literally grown muscles around this new posture. That's bad for me. It will destroy my body. But if that's all that you know, it's the easiest way to go. The hardest thing will be to literally become re-straightened. That also does not happen overnight. You can't suddenly have good posture. It's a gradual reshaping of your body, how you walk, how you stand, how you live. But when it is done, it relieves the burden and your life is easy, right? Jesus is asking for the same thing. You are hunched over because you're carrying burdens you were not meant to carry. Let me relieve you. Let me straighten you out. Let me give you an easier yoke. But at the beginning, it's hard. Because, again, it requires everything of us. Grant Osborne puts it this way. He says, Jesus' yoke is more than a way of life or of thinking. It is a relationship, a following, a commitment. It is choosing to walk the walk of Jesus, to approach life his way, to attain the whole measure of Christ. Therefore, rest is not just a sense of peace and tranquility in the chaos of life. It is, too, a relationship, a rest in him, an independence on him. It is like a small boy with a big brother. He knows there are all sorts of things he cannot do, but believes that with big brother's help, there is nothing he cannot do. So much of the life of hurry and rush and doing is about accepting the yoke of human expectation and success because we would rather run headfirst into imminent destruction than to be led out by another. When we talk about spiritual disciplines and even when we talk about Sabbath, gosh, stop, rest, celebrate, enjoy, heal. It sounds great. I'd love to take a day of my life and just enjoy the work that God has done in me, enjoy the fruits of, of labor, celebrate in the freedom that I have been given, relax in his presence and enjoy and not become overly distracted or deterred by either, either mindless things or busyness that make me feel like I'm doing things, but I'm actually just losing more time. And what's the thing we all wish we had more of? Time. We always wish for more time. Why? So we can do more things? You're still going to want more time. The only, how, what's, how, what's the only way to enjoy, like, to not wish for more time? To enjoy the time that you have. If you actually enjoyed the time that you have, you wouldn't need more time in your days. But we're so busy actively trying to cram and squeeze everything into the time that we have. We need more time to do more things, to lose more time. We burn ourselves out doing the same things, gaining more, gathering more, working more. We waste untold hours basking in the glow of attention-deforming technology. I missed this statistic, but do you know what the average attention span is of humans now? Seven seconds. Do you know what the average attention of a, gold span, uh, a goldfish is? Eight seconds. Yeah. So when we think about spiritual disciplines, we go, it, it would be nice to enjoy the presence of God more. But that sounds really hard. It sounds like too much work. We sleep less, eat worse, enjoy less and less real relationships. We, we struggle with this concept because, man, we have become masters at conquering space at the expense of time. Here's what Jesus is asking for us to do. He's asking for us to sacrifice your space, your stuff, your activities, 
your, your doings of things, your productivity. He's asking for you to sacrifice some of those things. He's not saying that work is bad. Work is absolutely a blessed thing of God. But rest is so important. It's a rhythmic part of what Jesus is asking for us to do, work and rest. That's what it means to be human. To be a machine, just work. Work and rest. That is the art of being human. We have lost sight of one of those. This is a journey to help reclaim the art of rest in our lives, the art of stopping, to to sacrifice the pursuit of the more and to embrace time. Time with Jesus, time with your family, time with your friends, time alone. Sit down and stay a while. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to share communion together. Father, we just, uh, I end uh, this time the same way that I began, scared. Um, Because what you are asking of me means letting go of a lot of the things that I consider really, really important. And has of yet been unwilling and unable to let go. That's why I'm thankful that you brought us into a community to share and encourage one another through this. My prayer, Lord, is that you would be challenging each and every one of us who are weary and burdensome to come and be present with you, to come and to rest to experience Sabbath, just dwelling in your presence, enjoying the fruit of what, what, what has been done for us and through us and in us. To enjoy it together. Father, I think I'm scared because I don't even know what that's going to mean. I'm so excited by what it could mean. And Father, you know as well as I do that the scaredness that I have is not so much about what I might gain, but what I might lose, which when I think about it isn't all that much. But we become so worn down in paths and ruts of living that it seems almost harder to do it any differently. Father, I'd ask that that you would come and intervene and help us to Shabbat, to stop. Kill it if you have to. End this cycle of perpetual motion that we have gotten ourselves into. And help us, Father, to be mindful of the time that we have. I just thank you and be with us. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So uh, we're going to be practicing communion this morning. And uh, uh, as usual, here's, here's how we like to do things. Uh, because we are a community, uh, and because this is our, our community table, we come and we share this table together. We come and partake of, of this table, a table of grace. When you walk into a home and you are invited to their dinner table, it is an act of grace. Welcoming hospitality. Come and share of the meal that has been prepared. When we take the the body and the blood of Christ, we are coming to a meal that has been prepared for us. We take this as a family because as a family, we have come and experienced grace together. And as we do so today, as we take of the bread and the wine, we are enjoying the fruit of what Jesus has done for us. We celebrate his work on our behalf that allows us to say no to the constant measures of acceptance and worth. Without the sacrifice of Christ, we would continue to be working and pushing and fighting and moving to gain our acceptance, our favor, our meaning. Jesus takes that 
who dies for us, and he provides for us that meaning and grace and acceptance that comes with his grace and mercy and forgiveness. His death is the thing that sets us free and allows us to actually practice and participate in Sabbath together. The only thing that permits us to stop is his sacrifice on our behalf. So we get to share that together. I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to sing and play. And as we go, um, when you are ready, come and take of the elements and return to your seat. And we will, um, we will take of them together after that song. If there is somebody in your row or around you who, who may have trouble getting up and walking around, uh, just ask if you can serve them. Just ask if it would be okay if you brought the elements to them. I'm sure they would appreciate that. Um, we're a family. We do look out for each other in that way. So um, we're going to uh, do that now. And uh, at the end of that song, we'll, we'll call you back together to, to take the elements at the same time. <laughs>